Our scripture reading today is 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 6. That's page 991 in your pew Bible. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 6. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You ever double booked yourself before? The, uh, the first half of my double booking occurred last week at about this very time. Uh, it started when I promised you that this morning I would be preaching on the controversial and complex topic of church discipline. And then on Monday I realized it was Mother's Day and uh, Parent and Child Dedication Day. And it seemed like an ironic cocktail that I did not want to mix up this Sunday. And so we are going to push discipline uh, back a few weeks. We're still going to get there. Uh, It relates intimately to what we talked about last week, uh, particularly with regard to baptism and communion. So we will get there. Uh, But today we're not going to get there. We are going to continue in our little series together for good for the next few weeks. Uh, But we're going to tackle something else that is very critical to our staying together for good. Maybe you picked up on a double meaning there in that, that phrase, together for good. Together for good means like together forever. We're together for good, come what may. But it also means that we are together in this community to be a force for good. We're together for good, and then we're together to be a force for gospel good. And last week, I tried to persuade you that the Lord's Supper is more than a snack. And we took something that is very commonplace in our gatherings. We do it week after week after week after week. But we tried to kind of pull the layers back and see what was behind that and what it is that we're actually doing when we come to this table. I want to do that for us again today, only I want to do it with the concept of the idea of prayer. Something else that is very commonplace for us every single week. This week, I want to persuade you that when we gather, we're more than a crowd of diverse people. We're a community of desperate prayers. We're a community of desperate prayers. I am not so ashamed to admit that I have been sucked into the deep, dark YouTube hole that is flash mobs, all right? Does anybody know what a flash, do we know what flash mobs are in here, most of us? All right, I'll explain it to you real quick if you don't. Just imagine in your mind's eye a mall or maybe like a train station or a big town square in the middle of a busy city with a crowd of people that are all headed in like a million different directions with a million different agendas. Uh, And then all of a sudden, Seemingly out of nowhere, someone begins to sing or dance or play an instrument or something. And at first, no one's the wiser. It's just like the weirdo doing their thing, right? They're on their, they walk to the beat of their own drum, and that's what they're doing there. Until more and more and more and more people get in on the gig. 
And suddenly, what was this like isolated weirdo has become a coordinated mob of people that are singing or dancing or playing instruments or whatever. And so over the course of five minutes or more sometimes, more people than you thought possible have gotten in on the gig. And suddenly, it's all like the non-singing or non-dancing or non-instrument-playing people that feel like they're the weirdos because they're the ones stuck on the outside of this thing looking in. And so what happens is, instead of a crowd of people going in their different uh, ways with their different agendas, having different destinations, instead of a crowd of people like that, they actually morph into a community of people who have set their collective sights on this one thing that is mesmerizing and captivating, something crazy and out of the ordinary that they're all just sucked into. The non-mob crowd, usually they're like, they're covering their mouths with their hands like this, or they're looking at their neighbor being like, are you, are you seeing this? It's crazy. Suddenly, the crowd has morphed into a community of people whose attention has been arrested by this one thing. Their agendas, whatever they were, wherever they were headed, can be set aside, even if just for a minute, because they've become a part of something bigger than themselves, something so captivating that it is worth setting all their stuff aside for just a second to capture this moment. This is what we are after here at Trinity Community Church in our family. Not a crowd, which is what this is, technically. We're not after a crowd, though. We are after a community of people who week in and week out are captivated by the same thing, casting our desperate dependence at the feet of Jesus. And casting our dependence very intentionally through prayer Together, together prayer. This kind of praying won't happen by accident. It will require a conscious, conscious choice by each of us to be committed to being a people of prayer, particularly when we get together as the church, particularly on Sundays. Our church is not a crowd that gathers on Sundays, but a dependent community of committed prayers. If we are a community of prayers, and not just a crowd, what should be written on the pages of our communal prayer journal, as it were? High level, I think something like this. This is our big idea for today. Hopefully something portable you can take home with you. It's this. We should pray big prayers for our church to flourish peacefully and for the gospel to advance powerfully. My hope is that more and more a praying community here at Trinity is cultivated and fostered we're going to be rolling out more and more opportunities for prayer together. And I urge you to, as much as possible, link arms with us to do this. Uh, today in our pre-gathering prayer meeting, it was the second week that we've had it since we've picked it back up. This is not a shaming technique at all. It was just an observation I made while I was in the room. Uh, besides the children, I was the youngest person in the room. There are many older saints in there, not old saints, hear me, the people that were in there, but older saints. And... It struck me. I wonder if that's a reflection of the fact that they've lived a little bit longer than some of the younger ones among us, and they've begun to realize just how desperate they truly are for Jesus to move in them and through them. I wonder if God might, over the next few months and years, begin to lower the average age in that room so we can learn early on in life just how desperate we are for the Spirit to move in us and among us. Just a little plug there for our pre-gathering prayer meeting. Uh, in Luke 19, 
Jesus gets just about as fired up as you see him throughout all the Gospels. He starts flipping tables. He's kicking people out of the temple. He is, he is, he's on fire. Why? Because they had turned the temple into a production. They had turned the temple, a place, a gathering place for God's people, into a business. And how does Jesus correct them? He says, hey, this is my house, and my house is a house of prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer, he says. Uh, one guy says, uh, one uh, historian has noted that uh, to this day in the Arab world, when Christians go to church, they say, I'm going to pray. Why not say, I'm going to church? Like most of us would say, we woke up this morning, we thought, I'm going I'm to go to church today. In the Arab world, they say, I'm going to go pray today. The Arab church preserves the centrality of prayer because that's what the early church did when they gathered. It saw itself as a house of prayer. Have we lost Jesus' vision for us being a house of prayer? One scholar describes the early church's gatherings like this. Christians, in a manner unparalleled among pagans, prayed together. Their place of worship was a place of corporate prayer with many people praying, standing near each other before the face of God. So in light of this, I think it's time to bring back our friend, Reggie. We've gotten a lot of mileage out of Reggie over the last few months, uh, but he's back. He's from M. Night Shyamalan's movie, Lady in the Water. If you haven't seen the movie, you haven't missed much, I promise you. But there is a character in the movie that we've returned to a few times over the last couple of months uh, that kind of represents when we're good at one thing and maybe puny at another thing. Reggie constantly works out his his right arm, all right. He constantly works out his right arm and he leaves his left arm alone. But I wonder if as a church, is this what we've become? Maybe buff on word ministry or you name it, but puny on prayer. Does our church, does Trinity look a little bit more like Reggie than we might like to admit? Prayer is the breath of the church. It's not for super Christians. It's not just for pastors. It's for all of us who are desperate, desperate for God to work in us and then through us and among us. Paul Miller says, when the power train of prayer is connected to kingdom vision and passion, all heaven breaks loose. Don't we want to see heaven break loose among us and then through us? Then let us pray. Let us pray before our gatherings. Let us pray from this pulpit. Let us pray in the pews. Let us pray in small pockets before and after gatherings. And in bigger groups, let us pray in our community groups and in our homes. Let us pray that all heaven might break loose through us and all along the streets and in the homes of our communities. Prayer is not just one of our activities on Sunday. It's not just a duty. It's not just a discipline. It's a reflection of desperation. Prayer should be the engine of all that we do here as a church. Not something we tack on to make us feel better about something because it's the Christian thing to do. Now, we hear the term prayer and we probably have all have our each, we probably each have our own unique take on what we think prayer is or what like image that conjures in our minds. Here's a definition that I think we can all agree on. Prayer is intentionally engaging with God to build a relationship with him and seek alignment with his spirit-breathed purposes. Intentionally 
engaging, building a relationship, and seeking alignment. So I'm going to take each of those portions piece by piece. Prayer requires intentional engagement with God on your part. It doesn't just happen. So when Jesus talks about prayer uh, in Matthew 6, he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Now, Jesus is talking, he's teaching on private prayer here, which is not what we're talking about today, but the underlying principle remains the same. There is a certain, like, deliberateness about prayer. It requires a choice and a movement. Sometimes it's even like a physical movement. Go into your room, shut the door. But prayer is also deeply relational. Jesus likens it to hanging out for dinner. We talked about a few weeks ago from Revelation 3, when Jesus describes the intimacy he desires with us in prayer, he talks about it like he's coming over for dinner. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. What a sweet, intriguing invitation to to dine with Jesus. Uh, It's intentional, it's relational, but it's also deeply submissive. We are called to align with all of God's spirit-breathed purposes. Just before the cross, Jesus asked to be released from his task to get up on the cross. He's talking to his father, and he's like, man, please, can, can, I, can, can you relieve me of this? And then he ends the prayer with, but not my will, your will. He's asking, he's making a request of the father, but he's also aligning himself with God's purposes for his life. Jesus shows us that prayer is less about moving God's hand than it is about moving our hearts and then aligning them with God's purposes. How will we know what is in alignment with God's purposes? Well, Ephesians 6 has something to say about that. Here's what Paul says. He says, praying at all times in the spirit, making supplication for all the saints. So how will we know it aligns with God's will? By praying in God's spirit. Prayer is the single most powerful weapon that any of us have at our disposal at any time because it connects us to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, praying in the spirit kind of sounds spooky to us, or at least to some of us probably, but I don't think praying in the spirit is a reference to some kind of weird trance that we would fall into while we were praying. It's more practical, like boots on the ground than that. Uh, In that same chapter from Ephesians 6, uh, the word of God is likened to a weapon. Specifically, it's likened to a sword, the sword of the spirit. The word of God is a spirit-wrought weapon that we use against the enemy. So what is praying in the spirit? Praying in the spirit is praying in accordance with the way the swordsmith has expertly crafted this unique weapon. Praying in the spirit isn't spooky. It's praying in accordance with the way that the swordsmith has expertly crafted this unique, powerful weapon. This is why our little definition of prayer that we had a few minutes ago said this, seek alignment with spirit-breathed purposes. Seek alignment with spirit-breathed purposes. I think what Paul means here by praying in the spirit, I think that's what Paul means here by praying in the spirit. Uh, Praying in the boundaries and the safety of the words that the spirit has breathed out onto the pages of your Bible. The spirit of Jesus is not our personal assistant to to bless the plans that we come up with and pray for. He's not our assistant to carry those out. He has his own wise and good plans, and we would do ourselves to do our do good for ourselves to align ourselves with those plans. But do you know what else this tells us? It tells us something really amazing. It tells us that the word of God, as powerful as it is in its own right, is itself enhanced by the prayers of God's people. 
The word of God is a sword, but it needs to be wielded through the people of God through prayer. This is astounding. How can we stay together for good? Maybe you've heard that old proverb, the family that uh, stays together prays together, right? The family that prays together stays together. Maybe that seems trite and silly, I don't know, but it's foundationally true, especially for a faith family. The faith family that prays together stays together for good. So if we want to be able to survive the onslaught of the enemy, we're going to need this weapon close at hand at all times, wielding it through prayer when we come together. Paul Miller again says, if we are not praying, then we are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all we need. Oof. All the money and talent in the world won't win you nothing in the spiritual battle that you are in right now. That old serpent is too big for you, too powerful, too shrewd and cunning. We need the Lord. We need to pray with open hands. We need to weaponize his word through prayer. Without prayer, we will not win. There are battles to be won by prayer in the spirit that will be lost without prayer in the spirit. Do you believe that? If we did, we'd probably pray more. Now, let's not get this twisted this morning. God does not need our prayers. We do. God's spirit isn't helpless without our moving him or unleashing him or activating him in some way through prayer. He can and still will do what he wants, but in some mysterious way, our prayers matter. Through prayer, God is aligning our hearts with his and doing what we could never do. So do you remember back in Matthew 6 when Jesus is teaching on prayer? Again, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, if this is true, then why do we pray? If he already knows, why do we pray? There is a mystery here. I will concede that. I can't fully untangle that. We should love prayer, but we should also kind of be baffled by prayer. Words that we say in the quiet of this room change the course of the universe? What? Sam Storms puts it well. We must never presume that God will grant us apart from prayer what he has ordained to grant us only by means of prayer. This is why we pray when we come together on Sundays. C.S. Lewis explains a little further. The event in question has already been decided. In a sense, it was decided before all worlds. But one of the things taken into account in deciding it, and therefore one of the things that really caused it to happen, may be this very prayer that we are now offering. My free act of prayer contributes to the cosmic shape. Again, God determines both the ends and the means, including the prayers we offer. And he's ordained his interventions to be in response to faith-fueled petitions. Put simply, God gives us the privilege of including us in his work. God doesn't need our prayers. We do. God isn't helpless without our prayers. He can and will do what he wants. But in some mysterious way, our prayers matter. There's another ominous reason that we pray when we come together. Uh, Do you remember that first Harry Potter book, movie, if you're a book person or movie person or both, maybe you haven't seen them or read them, that's fine, but there's this one scene when Harry has been dragged to the zoo by his Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia and his annoying cousin Dudley. Uh, And as they happen upon this snake exhibit in the zoo, everything is good, everything is rolling rolling along like normal, normal zoo trip. 
Everything is good. Everyone is safe behind the safety of the glass, and they can see the python through the safety of the glass there. And then Harry, without even meaning to, or even realizing it really, but because he is magical, he causes the glass between his family and the python to disappear. Uh, and you can imagine the scene that follows after that. The, the zookomers uh, are all disappearing and they're running in all different kinds of directions because they're afraid of the python coming out and everyone's flipping out and running away and screaming and, and panic is, is very uh, evident on screen. It's just chaotic fear, probably like it would be for you and me if we were standing there a couple of feet away from a gigantic python. Why is this? Because no one trusts a snake, right? We've been taught not to trust a snake. And once that protective barrier comes down, there was no protection from that snake. Trinity, I'm not sure if we realize, and I put myself in the category, how dangerous our mundane day-to-day -day lives are. We've been lulled to sleep. We've forgotten that the snake is on the loose. There are effective weapons to fight, but we must not underestimate our foe. He is transcendently dangerous. From the beginning pages of scripture, Satan is likened to a snake, a serpent. And the evil in this world is hard for us to see, but it is still there. Do you think your souring marriage is just because of a rough patch? Do you think that your anxiety and depression is just related to your diet or lack of exercise? Do you think that the political divide of our day is just politics? There's something more sinister at play something more devilish. And if we don't walk onto the battlefield of our lives with the spiritual weapon of prayer, of desperate prayer, we are not going to win. We will be overcome. We are up against an enemy that we, in and of ourselves, have no business being alone in the ring with. The snake isn't behind the glass. So Paul says, keep alert with all diligence. That's like battlefield language right there. Keep your head on a swivel. And one of the main ways that we keep alert with all perseverance is through prayer. And so I want to make two specific suggestions today for how we can pray in the Spirit together when we gather together for good. That is how we can pray according to the Word of God when we come together. There will be other times to talk about how to have flourishing private prayer lives, a pri private uh, prayer relationship with Jesus that is flourishing and thriving. Today, though, we talk about our, our prayers together. So if you were expecting, when you heard that we're going to be talking about prayer this morning, if you were expecting to leave this place depressed because you don't pray enough alone, uh, no fear. We will not be depressing you today on that. If you need to be depressed about that, go for it. But um, we probably all do. But today, we're talking about our prayers together particularly, okay? And so earlier, I gave this big idea for us. We should pray big prayers for our church to flourish peacefully and for the gospel to advance powerfully. And so how can we do this? We see the answer in 1 Timothy 2. We pray that the authorities in our lives would promote peace in our world. Second, we pray that the good news of our Christ would advance powerfully in our city. Pray that the authorities in our lives would promote peace in our world and that the good news of our Christ would advance powerfully in our city. As I reflect back on my 40 years or so of life, uh, there are at least eight dates in my life where the church's collective prayer journal should have turned the page. November 6th, 1984. Uh, November 8th, 1988. 
November 3rd, 1992. November 5th, 1996. November 7th, 2000. November 4th, 2008. November 8th, 2016. November 3rd, 2020. Does anyone know what happened on these dates? Yeah, presidential elections, good. Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. Now, surely those names conjure up all kinds of feelings for you. Some negative, some positive, maybe, I don't know. I wonder if those names, though, ever compelled prayer from you. According to the scriptures, they should. How do we stay together for good? Pray that the authorities in our lives would promote peace in our world. In the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and he's like composing a leadership manual of sorts, telling him how he's supposed to lead this church. And Paul's primary thrust here is what happens when the church gets together. See this in 1 Timothy 3. He says, I'm writing these things to you, Paul, to Timothy. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So keep this gathering context in mind as we are progressing here. And, and then as I reread what Sue read for us a few minutes ago from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he says, first of all, then, I urge that prayers be made for all people. But then he spells out what he means by all people. Look at verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So don't skip over Paul's order here. All right. First up on the agenda, says Paul, the first thing I want to address in your public gatherings, the first item is prayer. I urge then, first of all, isn't this interesting? That this is what comes first from Paul's pen. In a day in which the average church spends 30 to 40 minutes singing and maybe 30 to 40 seconds praying, Paul would have probably been gravely concerned about the patterns of the American church. Prayer is of primary importance, he says. I urge you then, first of all. But we all don't often give it its rightful place. It's hard. For honest, prayer is hard. It's harder than singing. Now, granted, some singing is prayer, and I, I get that. Uh, but this text look at the, looks at the American church and says, stop. Stop and be quiet and pray. I urge then, first of all, Pray. Now, I don't mean to insinuate that there is a perfect ratio of praying to singing to preaching. Some of you might be eager for that preaching uh, quotient to lower a little bit. I don't know. Um, so I'm not talking about what the perfect ratio is there. The New Testament is mostly vague and not very prescriptive in terms of what needs to happen specifically at our gatherings and when and for how long. But when things are clear, like they are here in 1 Timothy 2, 1, we should listen and apply specifically, like praying for the things that are specifically prescribed here in 1 Timothy 1, 2, 1 and 2. Now, I think Paul is probably just using these terms here in verse 1, the various terms for prayer synonymously, like piling them up for effect, so we won't take the time to untangle all of those today. But the point is, we should be praying broadly for all sorts of things in all sorts of ways. And I really like how Paul motivates this here. Look at verse 3. He says, this praying together, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God. It's like the difference uh, between handing your wife or a loved one flowers on Valentine's Day and saying, I had to get these for you. Or saying, oh, I just had to get these for you. Their beauty reminded me of your beauty. Man, I should have used that one this morning. 
They did remind me of your beauty. One is born out of duty. I had to get these for you. And one is born out of delight. I just had to get these for you. So we pray big prayers because we delight in what delights God. First Timothy 2.3, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God. This is why we do it. So prayer should be a primary marking of our gatherings. God loves this. Now, it isn't certain when exactly Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. What we are certain of, though, is that it was not a comfortable time to be a Christian. The authorities were not pro-God. They were not pro-gospel. Many were positively antagonistic toward this new Christian movement. Some of them were being put to death for their belief in this, belief in this Christ. And so Paul appears to be saying, pray for all, even those who oppose you, maybe especially those who oppose you, the authorities. So Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, have we complained more about these men than we have prayed for these men? Why is Paul urging this? We pray together for our authorities so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives as believers. That's what the second half of verse two says there, if you look at it. The call here is to pray for all types of people inclusively, including leaders and authorities, so that we may live peaceful lives as believers. If you ever wondered how we curate the list of our prayers, our prayer list for Sundays, it didn't show up on screen today because we had the Mother's Day prayer, but if you've been here other weeks, you can see on screen all the different sorts of categories that we pray for. Often it includes uh, local, regional, national, global leaders. This text is a big reason why we curate the list in the way that we do. Well, next, Paul shines more light on what we should be praying for together as a church. Number two this morning, Pray that the good news of our Christ would advance powerfully in our city. Uh, read again, starting at verse 3, of what the hoped-for outcome is for these prayers. Verse 3, God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why should we pray big? Because our God is a saving God, a God who desires all sorts of people to be saved, even the authorities in our lives that we think are beyond saving. No one's too far. No one is beyond the reach and the rescue of our great Savior, is what the point of this text is. So which family member of yours, which friend of yours, which authority have you given up on because, ah, it's just hopeless? Pray, pray, pray. God has ways of creating life where you never thought it was possible. We want to model those sorts of prayers when we're gathered together as a church. So God's heart, his desire, is that all people would turn from their sins, that they would turn from their false saviors and put their faith in a saving Christ. Has the gospel penetrated deep enough to allow you to pray for every single kind of people, group, or persuasion that you know of? Or are there some races, some political persuasions, some differing ideologies that you're unwilling to pray for? Have you forgotten just how desperate and needy you were for the gospel? I was for the gospel. The gospel challenges us in this way, doesn't it? It, it absolutely levels the playing field of every human ever. Absolutely no one is beyond the reach of grace. And at the same time, absolutely no one is beyond the need of grace. Exclusivity should be crushed in our hearts because it's nowhere to be found in God's. There's not a hopeless politician, celebrity, or homeless person. God's arm is not too short to save. This should be reflected in our corporate prayers. There's another more practical reason to pray like this when we gather together. 
It's a weekly rhythmic reminder that we are not in the foxhole alone. You've got all kinds of saints here with you in the foxhole, ready to go into battle with you. And the primary way we, we battle together, link arms together, is through prayer. If we hop back over to Ephesians 6 for a second, Paul calls on the church there to make supplication for all the saints. He says, and also for me. Paul himself needed courage to speak with boldness. So he begged for his friends to pray that the spirit would wield the sword to do surgery in his own heart. He says, pray for me. And he wanted his friends to pray that the word would have its way with him and that he would be bold to proclaim the word in the context that he was in right there. So can I beg you to please pray this for me? Pray that I would be bold to proclaim the truth from this place, to declare it faithfully and unashamedly. And then bust out your church directory and pray these kinds of prayers for the faces that you see in that membership directory. Pray it for every member, day by day. Here's the thing. We say this is a lot, but it's true. If we want to go far, we have to go together. We survive together by praying together for each other. Look at the flavor of Paul's prayer, church, in Ephesians 6. Again, he says, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul's prayer is bent on gospel proclamation, not self-preservation. He's praying that he would have the courage to speak the gospel with confidence and courage. And you have to keep in mind that Paul is in jail as he writes these things. I mean, if, if, if you're in jail and you're sending out letters to your friends or your family, I think pray that God would get me out of here would probably top the list of your prayer list, right, when you're sending out your prayer list. But not Paul. No, he's saying, guys, pray that God would give me courage in this place to proclaim the gospel and not self-preserve. The sword of the Spirit had cut down his selfish priorities and reoriented his heart to kingdom priorities. Here's Paul Miller again, who's just been so formative in my thinking about prayer. He says this, we've not invited a feel-good Jesus into our community. We've submitted ourselves to the rule of a battle-hardened warrior king, the lion lamb, who's come to deal with evil. He's not here to make our plans work. He's here to draw us into the Father's mission. A praying community continuously invites his disruptive rule. So prayer is like this walkie-talkie that we have while we're on the battlefield. It's how we stay in constant contact with our commander-in-chief. And that's how we prevent ourselves from becoming a church just for ourselves. Prayer is how we prevent ourselves from becoming a church just for ourselves. But most of us haven't found ourselves even needing a walkie-talkie on the battlefield, have we? We're just sitting on the sidelines watching a precious few go out and do the work. I think much of our weakness in private prayer, I speak of myself, and then in public prayer too, comes from the fact that we are not at all living like we are on active duty as soldiers in the king's army. But we are. We all are. You need to weaponize your fellow believers through prayer, and you need to be weaponized too through their prayer so that we can tell our family members, our friends at the gym, our next-door neighbors about the mind-blowing, glorious, resurrecting, powerful truth of the gospel. But we won't have the courage to do that unless we're praying for one another to do that. That's why we desperately need one another to hop on our walkie-talkies and interact with the commander-in-chief on each other's behalf. 
prayer is some of the hardest work we do as Christians. You ever thought about that? It seems easy. You're just sitting there in the quiet. It is some of the absolute hardest work you will ever do as a Christian, which is why we have to do it together. It's so hard. We have to do it together. The church that prays together stays together. John Stott highlights why our churches seem so innocuous in our age. What good is our church doing in our community? He says this, I sometimes wonder if the slow progress toward world peace and world evangelization is due to the prayerlessness of the people of God. We should take the task of public intercession more seriously than we do. If local churches were to bow down before God every Sunday for 10 or 20 or even 30 minutes, what might God be free to do? Doesn't that just make you salivate a little bit? Eager to see what God might do? So will you join us each week as collectively we hop on our walkie-talkies to beg God to do his thing? And as we close here, I just want to highlight a couple of ideas or applications for us. First, prayer resistance is reflective of a consumeristic existence. Prayer resistance is reflective of a consumeristic existence. I think we probably all tend to stumble into the idea that a good prayer meeting should be accompanied by some kind of spiritual high, that we feel a certain way about a prayer meeting. We, we should end our prayer meetings together with a special sense that we've connected with God in some mysterious, mystical way. At least I, I, I tend to lean in that direction, or at least I, I tend to want that when we pray together. I think this is because we are better consumers than we are prayers. Social media, instant and visual. Prayer, slow, mysterious. We consume what's easier, easier and we resist what's harder. We consume what's easier and we resist what's harder. But the reality is that our actual experience of prayer can often be tedious. And slowly we become resistant to prayer because it's hard. Paul Miller again, the act of praying itself is a kind of dying where you give up your self-will to make things happen and go to God with a collective, help us. The initial feeling of prayer is dying to self because praying is an act of the will, a decision to shut down your activity and open the door to God's activity. Praying together is going to require discipline, work, and faith, all of which are weak in consumers. Discipline, work, and faith are weak in consumers. So if you're here for a particular kind of product on Sundays, prayer is going to be a drag for you when we stop and we take five, six, seven minutes to pray. But if you're here to be an engaged saint on the cutting edge of the kingdom, weaponizing the sword of the spirit through prayer, well, then that's a different story. And I'd encourage you to try to flip your perspective of what it is we're doing when we are praying. Prayer resistance that we feel is reflective of our own consumeristic existence. Most of us spend our lives as consumers. And that's okay, but we just need to be aware of that in our hearts and that tendency. Second, churches weak in prayer are also weak in stories. Churches weak in prayer are also weak in stories. Often in our family meetings, which are like our member meetings once a month that we have, we have what we call stories of grace for 5, 10, 15 minutes. And this is a chance for our members to share what God is up to in, in them and then what, the member, what, what God is up to in them and then through them. We have heard some amazing stories, like mind-blowing stories of a powerful God at work in the lives of our members. It's been a privilege to have a front row seat to them, truly. But might we have more stories if we had more prayers? I am hungry for more stories, more grace, more Jesus. And I think what we've learned today through the text is that if we pray more, 
there'll be more grace and more stories of grace. And then finally today, we are in this to win, and prayer is how we get there. We are in this to win, and prayer is how we get there. As we wrap our time together this morning, I want to entice us toward a hopeful prayer, even while we slug it out with Satan in the day-to-day. As we pray together, please never forget, Satan is not Jesus' equal, and the outcome is not in question, all right? That is something to rally around right there. Right there. Satan is not Jesus' equal. It's not an equal spar here, and the end is not in question. We know how the story ends, all right? In the face of Satan, we don't panic. As our world crumbles and gets more disorienting, we don't panic. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, all right? Ephesians 1, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. This is how things end, right here. Clearly, heaven and earth are out of sync. Things have not been pulled together to unite in Jesus yet. But Linda Carlisle had it wrong. Heaven is not a place on earth yet. That much is obvious. There is no heaven on earth right now. They cannot be pulled together unless heaven is to be tainted with sin, which would never happen, or earth is to be cleansed of sin, which will happen. But right now, heaven and earth are like oil and water. We're like on your laptop when the internet goes down. There's no sink. Jesus came to restore the sink, to pull heaven and earth back together fully and finally. That means he must die for sinners and he must redeem them. When the last sinner in Jesus' family is redeemed, the sink will be complete and the new age will commence. That's still in the future. In the meantime, we fight the spiritual war on callousing knees with Jesus' return in view. So the entirety of the scriptures was written to show us that all of our choices in parenting, marriage, church, all of them ought to declare the victory of King Jesus. And every moment that you bow in prayer in your heart or on your knees to resist the lies of Satan is a reminder to us and to him that the devil has lost and that his final defeat is coming soon. And so we stand together in God's strength, buoyed by the prayer of the saints together. We stand in the cosmic victory of King Jesus. He's already won the decisive victory. And one day he's returning to end the war altogether. Until then, the war between Satan and Christ is being fought in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, in our churches, and on our screens. And he calls us to go to war with the powerful weapons of war that we've been given. When we gather, we are more than a crowd of diverse people. We are a community of desperate prayers. Let's pray together now. I don't even know who's coming up to desperately pray for us, but somebody is. All right, sweet, thank you. Our Father, the Lord who hears, who listens, and who acts. As we sit here with the weighty privilege of coming, coming before your throne, speaking to you through this wartime walkie-talkie, help us, Lord, to know you. Thank you that we are aware that we're dying, but at the same time, teach us to breathe. Mm. Let us know that we can speak to you. Not only that we can, but that we should, in the deepest sense, that it is an invitation that though we know that we're bleeding out and we see that around us, 
we have a victorious king who knows what it means to fight, who has fought, and who will win. We confess that we don't fear the right things. We don't fear Satan, however close he is to us, and however anxious or angry we may be. Instead, Lord, we allow this pity or disgust come out as we talk about people and groups and identities uh, who just don't make sense to us rather than praying for them. And so, Lord, as I think for myself and as I think for our church, help us to pray for those in power, for those in authority over us. We pray for President Biden. We pray for Kamala Harris. We pray for those who are making decisions counter to what we value. And yet, Lord, we know that we're not here because we made a series of good decisions. We're not sitting in pews this morning because we're the good and righteous people. You, Lord, are gathering for yourself a family, a diverse community to create the body of Christ on earth. And we pray for our pastors. We pray for Josh and what it means for him to be bold, that you would make him humble, that you would allow him to fully utilize his gifts in speaking vision over the church and leading in the ways that he's been called. We pray for John as he seeks to hear and to listen to many stories, to gather those together and to present those well, to care for those in his care, and to lead his family especially. We pray for Justin. Even as we sit behind him, and I looked in Eli's eyes this morning thinking of Mother's Day, Justin is a father too, and we ask that you would help him to lead his family well, to be an example of gospel grace to our church, and to use his gentleness and his gifting of it uh, as a welcome member of leading us well. Thank you, Lord, that you have granted us this diverse community of gifts. Help us, Lord, to delight in what delights you. Um, help us to fight for your redemption. And Spirit, as our lungs are filled with heaven's air, bring us closer and closer to life. Thank you that you won't let us die. Help us to fight instead. In Christ's name.